Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we curate weird and wonderful science within your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this first 2023 edition, I speak with Adrian Franulovic about the Australian Computer Museum Society and the 40th anniversary of the Apple Lisa computer. But first, here's news of shaking up rejuvenation. Shaking old mice makes them younger. Researchers at the University of Texas have found that low-frequency ultrasound therapy can turn aged senescent cells back into young dividing cells. In old mice. And in old human and monkey cells in a petri dish. In the elderly mice, the ultrasound treatment improved their physical performance in tests such as running on a treadmill. And one old mouse with a hunchback was able to move around normally again. Researchers at the University of Queensland found that higher frequencies of ultrasound restored the memory performance of older mice. Cells in our bodies constantly divide throughout their lives, dying and being replaced if they become sick or injured beyond repair. Senescent cells stop dividing, and some secrete chemicals that cause inflammation or induce senescence in other cells, spreading the problem. These secretions are thought to be a major cause of the diseases of old age. Most researchers are working on drugs to kill off the senescent cells. At the University of Texas, they're rejuvenating the senescent cells with low-frequency ultrasound. Low-frequency ultrasound therapy uses frequencies of sound between 20 to 50 kHz, a hundred times lower than is used for imaging. The lower frequencies penetrate deeper into organs than higher frequencies. As the energy within the ultrasound wave passes through biological tissues, their molecules vibrate. Molecular vibration can cause mechanical effects as the cells contract and expand with the vibrations. The University of Texas team found that low-frequency ultrasound makes senescent cells from monkeys and humans resume dividing and halts the secretion of chemicals that promote senescence and inflammation. The rejuvenated cells show no signs of abnormality. The team placed elderly mice in warm water deep enough to cover at least half their bodies. Mice treated with ultrasound improved in physical tests compared with mice that were put just in warm water. The team used fluorescent dyes that bind the senescent cells to show that after treatment, the pancreas and kidneys of the mice had a lower proportion of senescent cells. The team suspect that the mechanical distortion of the cells by vibration are working like exercise to reactivate the waste disposal systems inside cells. The University of Texas team are planning a trial involving people with osteoarthritis and people with diabetic foot ulcers. A team at the University of Queensland have found that higher frequency ultrasound at 1000 kHz improves memory performance in mice. They've started a small trial to see if the 1000 kHz ultrasound therapy can help people suffering Alzheimer's disease. A problem with applying ultrasonic therapy to humans is that bones and organs can block the transmission of the ultrasound waves. I think that using interference patterns to shape the sound waves and focus them may get us around 
the obstacles so we can get the good vibrations and focus the treatment. The paper titled Rejuvenating Senescent Cells and Organisms with Only Ultrasound was uploaded as a preprint to BioArchive and hasn't been subjected to peer review publishing. The paper Low-Intensity Ultrasound Restores Long-Term Potentiation of Memory in Senescent Mice Through Pleiotropic Mechanisms, Including NMDAR Signaling, was published in Nature Molecular Psychiatry. Listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. The Australian Computer Museum Society is based in Croydon in the inner west of Sydney, and they recently held a celebration of the 40th anniversary of the Apple Lisa computer. The first microcomputer with a mouse and graphical user interface available to the public. Adrian Fanulovich is the president of the Australian Computer Museum Society. I visited him at the museum and began by asking him, What is the Australian Computer Museum Society? Yeah, so the Australian Computer Museum Society was founded in 1994 by six individuals that saw a need to set up a history of not only IT in general, but also Australian IT. So obviously at one point or another, Australia was very far detached from the rest of the world. And because of that, Australia was was only the fourth country in the world to actually have a a computer. So that was built here locally, I think at the uh, University of Sydney, that was called CISERAC. And basically that put us on a pathway that Australia became very interested in computing because we became one of the first countries to actually have a computer available to people both in education and and business. So the Australian Computer Museum Society was set up at that time to basically start restoring this equipment. And so for a long time, storage was the game and we had issues with the amount we were trying to hold because If you're any kind of IT person, some of the stuff that gets donated sometimes is just too good to say no to, and you can start taking on board some things that you don't need. So what we've tried to do in the last few years is ensure that we store both Australian artifacts that are actually specific to Australia, even manufactured here, used here, developed here, designed here, or that were actually components of systems that were intrinsic to computing and technology developing. So you've seen a little bit of the museum today, and we're trying to kind of tell a story of how the development of computing happened, all the way from the first storage media of the Jacquard loom from 1725, to mechanical calculators, analog computers, digital computers, mini computers, frames, and microcomputers, which are on display. And you've got a building here in Croydon with lots of old hardware. Yes, so the ACMS 
as it's known, is based in Croydon in Sydney in New South Wales. And so this building in Croydon is what we refer to as the National Computing Heritage Centre, which is our workshop. So this is where we store our equipment. It's also where we run uh, workshops for our members to actually restore not only the equipment that we have here in the museum, but also inspire our members to bring their own equipment and and troubles to bring it into the museum and get some advice from other members that might have worked in the industry, that may have worked on that equipment specifically, electrical engineers, other engineers and people with general interest. Yeah, so the collection is unique and for all of the kind of interesting past that the ACMS has, which is very reminiscent of the IT industry in Australia and globally, what's happened because of that Let's just call it hoarding, which some people won't agree with. But because we kept a lot of stuff that was considered junk at one point or another in history, we have, by accident really, kept some of the most unusual items that were otherwise scrapped across the last 30, 40 years because they were seen with no value. And we have inadvertently hung on to them because of some strong characters that went, no, this is too interesting. And because of that now, we have all of this stuff that is otherwise been damaged, destroyed and lost in history. And we have that equipment because of how it was stored. So one thing that was probably a weakness for the organisation at one point in its history has now become its strength because we've held on to things that other people saw as junk. Whereas in hindsight now, just like any artifacts in any kind of civilization, technology, etc., these are the most just random, unusual things. One of the ones that I always draw back to is that we have Singer hard drives made by the Singer Sewing Machine Company. So I think we have two of them. I don't believe that there's any anywhere else in the world. Maybe there's one in the UK. Just it's these kind of random artifacts that you get that would have just been disposed as completely unnecessary and useless in the past history because they had been replaced where we've kept that information and we have this very good cross-section of all different technologies across many different eras from all over the globe but also with an Australian flavour as well. And that's one of the things, a lot of the computers here are in working order and you're letting people play with them. Yeah, so we have part of the collection here in Croydon is actually on display. So I'm a big advocate, uh, like the old days of Questacon, Powerhouse, etc. I grew up in that era where you were able to touch and play with the equipment and you were inspired as a child to actually get involved. That's what inspired me to enjoy this equipment the way I do whether it be my father bringing home his original Mac Portable from the office in 1991 and letting me play with his work computer to inspire me, it was something I wasn't scared of technology and that was because I had all of these early experiences with technology, just like kids today pick up an iPad when they're three months old and in instinctively know how to swipe the screen. It was kind of the same for me. It was not this thing that I was ever scared of and so we have these exhibits on display and it's very important for me to ensure that people have access to this to interest them and one of the things that happens is there's a lot of work in the emulation realm at the moment which is fantastic because it opens up access to a lot of this stuff but the next step is that I find that what we're losing in emulation is the noise, the sound, the heat, the vibration, the size, the weight just that entire experience of actually sitting and being with something there on your desk in person 
you know, emulation is great to get everyone interested, but when you actually are physically on the product, it just changes it. You hear the noises, you hear the high-pitched sounds, you hear, you know, you feel the slowness of some of these products. And so for me, it was very important that we have the ability for people to sit down and actually play with these computers and just not have everything behind glass. Well, that is a thing here. Like, you've got a very old PC here, and it's massive, and even the keyboard is really heavy. And you had a special mm. exhibition and talks today for the 40th anniversary of the Apple Lisa, the, which came before the Macintosh, yes. and they're really weighty as well. And, of course, the disk drives make noises, and the cathode ray tubes make very high-pitched noises, which most they people do. over 30 can't hear. That, that is correct. So... That kind of thing is lost when you're using emulation. And so today having the, uh, you know, the 40th birthday of the Lisa, which for me was a intrinsic and integral part of the GUI revolution that happened in computing in the 1980s. I think that definitely there was other people before Apple that introduced the GUI. They did not get the traction. The Lisa introduced the idea to people and it introduced that concept of the GUI. Then the Macintosh came and just hit the ball out of the park. And then it was became so ubiquitous. The mouse, you know, the cursor, copy and paste commands, the GUI, WYSIWYG, desktop publishing, it just all exists because of Apple. And now, not to say that it wouldn't have existed at some point in the future. Obviously, it still existed before Apple, but Apple's the one that actually was the marketing genius behind it that put bundled it into a package and, and made a lot of different things happen over the time that no other company could compete with for many, many years and even decades later. I spoke about some of the functions of the Lisa that didn't exist back in the Macintosh for over a decade or even two in some cases when they were reintroduced later by Apple. So they were way ahead of their time with the Lisa and I think it's you know, really important to have this day today and, and get people interested again. So Australia has a computing history of things like the Microbee, the Applic, and all sorts of different little little computers. And but even the Lisa, as you say, which was the first graphical user interface personal computer out yes. there mass produced. What year was that? So it was developed between 1978 and 1983, and it was introduced in. It was announced in January '83, and I believe it didn't ship until later in '83, and so. Prior to that, the first, I think, GUI that was available was through uh, Xerox, and it was expensive, it was good, it was a little bit clunky, and that started in the mid-70s. I think it was 76 that uh, uh, Xerox introduced the Alto and the Star um, later. Yeah. Which, of course, my understanding of the story of that is the technology was developed at Stanford. No, Stanford oh, Research Institute licensed to Xerox, who invented nothing, right. and then they thought... This is good to give us a business edge over everyone else. We've got computers. We can work together. Yep. No one else has got this. So mm. we'll just be better off with our with our photocopy business because no one else has got it. Yep. They didn't think of selling the computers to anyone else. Yeah, so they were using it kind of internally. But one thing I, t I touched on today in our talk was the fact that Steve Jobs and Apple, very smart. They, Steve knew of the work at Xerox Park, and I believe so did Steve Wozniak, and they had seen it and they had been very excited by what they saw. So what they decided to do was, and it's a great 
kind of, I think, you know, history there. Steve Jobs approached Xerox and said, I'll let you buy a million dollars worth of Apple stock, and this is 1978-79, before they went public with the IPO. I'll let you buy a million dollars of our stock in exchange for you giving like our engineers and our uh, management team two uh, visits of Xerox Park and you answer any of our questions. And Xerox took the opportunity. They invested a million dollars into Apple pre-IPO, which would have done them very well, I'm sure, in hindsight. But it gave Apple the tools and the legitimacy of actually getting access to their engineers and asking them questions. And even though Apple had access to these engineers and to the products and actually got to play with these products, Apple still went away a little bit confounded by what they had seen and what they had remembered of what they saw at Park wasn't what they developed. What they developed was actually in excess of that, not necessarily intentionally because they had just assumed that when they saw windows on the screen that were overlapping, that those windows were independent and there was stuff happening and the, the units. No, they weren't. So they then kind of, I think, asked Xerox, like, how did you get that working? They're like, what are you, what are you talking about? It didn't exist. So they didn't do the, the windows overlapped. And I think it was Bill Atkinson or uh, one of the other Mac guys basically worked out a way of doing regions in the desktop manager that allowed them to actually overlap windows in the OS. And the Lisa OS was, I believe, the first OS to offer overlapping in the operating system. And even like Windows 1.0, when it was released many years later, could not support overlapping windows. You had to use tiled windows on the screen. And that tiled idea still existed up to Windows 3.1. You could, I think, at that point overlap, but tiling was actually still very intrinsic to Microsoft Windows. Microsoft Windows also was heavily designed that it could all be done by keyboard command. A mouse wasn't required. And this is hilarious when you think about it. A mouse still wasn't a standard part of it. Many PCs, so trackballs, trackpads, an actual mouse, Many older PC laptops have nothing on them. They have a keyboard. They may have a serial port that you can use it with a com mouse, but they did not actually support a mouse natively. You actually had to install drivers and have it running. I know that I recently bought a Toshiba laptop, and I mean, this thing's running Windows 3.1, and it's from the 94, I believe, 93, 94. No cursor. And so you think that 10 years after the Mac was introduced in 84, 11 years after the Lisa was introduced, Windows still, and, and PCs in general, the mouse was there for people, but it wasn't something that was definitely like a, a requirement. The systems and the operating systems were still being built for complete keyboard commands to move around the system. So therefore, because you didn't have a mouse, tiled Windows is what you had to have because you couldn't access certain parts of Windows without tiling. So just it's interesting to see how much Apple really did inject into the ethos in everyone's brains in the community, especially now. Same as the iPhone when the iPhone was released. It's not like we didn't have phones, but 
the phone forever changed when Apple introduced the iPhone. Every other manufacturer went from keyboards and a small screen to large touch screens with built-in keyboards. Uh, I know Steve Ballmer, I think, famously said that it would never catch on with the business community and that BlackBerry was going to be around forever and that they even held a funeral for the iPhone in, I think, 2008. And look who's laughing now with the Windows phone completely gone from society. So you personally are obviously a big fan of the Apple computers, but the museum has more than Apple here by a long shot. Yeah, so look, my personal interest is Apple, but the best thing about the ACMS is the fact that we're not just a one-trick pony. We have HP Compact, Dex, Seiko, NEC, HP, Apple, Commodore, Amstrad, Osborne, and so, and the list goes on, right? But the thing is, when you actually look over the period of time going right back, all of these companies, a lot of them don't exist anymore. A lot of mergers happen. So a lot of our collection is from Max Burnett, who's a very famous Australian kind of collector. He was a digital sales manager in Australia, so Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC, as many people will know it. If you worked in any kind of industry like banking, mining, government, etc., digital equipment was the first successful mini computer operator with the PDP-8 that was released in 1965. It was the first affordable computer for a business or a school to put into their program that cost $20,000 at the time. So that's in 1965, obviously $20,000 was a lot of money, but in comparison to the millions that you might have been spending on other systems like the IBM 1401 or other systems of that time, it was just worlds ahead. So we have a considerable amount of deck equipment that was donated by Max Burnett, but we just have all of these different objects, like I mentioned Singer before. And Burroughs, NCR, and a whole stack of different ones. So we try and be fair and kind of show off and showcase a whole bunch of different things, including to these manufacturers that are no longer with us. Some of these manufacturers have just disappeared because of various factors over time. There was a lot of competition in computing, but another factor of a lot of these things disappearing, like digital doesn't exist anymore because digital was bought by Compaq, in 1998 in the largest corporate acquisition in computing history at that time and that was June 98. So DEC no longer existed, they were now part of Compaq. What then happened in 2002? Compaq had overextended themselves with how much money they spent buying DEC so they merged with HP and Compaq no longer existed. Now that's something in recent history where we've got three companies became one and then HP also kind of broke out to HPE and etc. But if you go back even further, things like Sperry, Sperry Rand merged with Univac, who became Unisys, which still exists today. So when you go back through a lot of these companies, although you see these names and you go, well, they don't exist or they haven't existed for a long time, they probably were bought by someone at some point along the way. It's only various companies particularly I think through the 80s um, for a lot of reasons like today we learned about the chip crisis in 1985 David Strong talked about how we were running short on RAM which is you know the chip crisis we've just lived another one and we're still living it in a bit but those kind of things really separate 
the weak from the strong. And so we lose some of those players along the way. One of the big multinational players used to be Sun Microsystems, and they got bought out by one of their own customers. Yeah, so this is the problem. If you end up with percentage of your sales, a very large percentage of your sales going to any one customer, obviously, what are you going to do? You're probably going to just buy your supplier because it's going to make life a lot easier. And some microsystems, you know, is a classic example. We actually do have a, a quite a bit of Sun stuff. We've even got SGI stuff. And uh, tying this back to the Lisa, Apple actually bought the protected memory system from Sun in the very early 80s before the Lisa came out to use protected memory on the Lisa, which was the first commercial business, uh, like home office and, and personally available computer that was affordable to have protected memory. And it lasted... Uh, there was no Macintosh with protected memory until Mac OS X came out on the 24th of March 2001. And then I believe protected memory didn't come into Windows until Windows 7 many, many, many years later. So it's just interesting to see how far ahead, once again, the Lisa was in comparison to everything else for quite a long time. That was part one of my interview with Adrian Frunulovic, president of the Australian Computer Museum Society. Listen next week for part two. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio, and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. 
In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.